Welcome to Military Dragnet. This is the story of the man who got away with murder, the killer who told on himself, and the officer who gave the orders. The defense of following a lawful order is a valid one. A soldier must obey orders, everybody knows that. But the order must be lawful, because it is not a valid defense if the order is not lawful. Ask the defenses at Nuremberg, who said they did the mass killings and crimes against humanity, but, you know, superiors ordered them to. Well, their necks broke at the end of the same rope as the men who gave those orders. When I was in the Army and the Coast Guard, I was given training in how to refuse an unlawful order. If ordered to take a prisoner out and get rid of him, I was supposed to say, Do you mean murder the prisoner? It'd give the officer a chance to change his mind and clarify the order by restating it to mean something like, No, I mean get him off my depot, or I mean give him to the civilian police and then return to your post. Natural if he told me, Yes, shoot him, I'd have to refuse. One of the men in this case said that if he'd been given proper police training, the incident would have never occurred possibly. This incident takes place on a cold dark night of 27 September 1952. It was in Korea on an air base K-9 near East Pusan. This was where most of the supplies were transported by ship to Korea. It was a very busy port and important to the UN mission then fighting in Korea. The war had ground down to a near stalemate while the UN North Koreans and the Chinese negotiated. There were thousands of bombs dropped and artillery duels daily as each side tried to grab as much real estate as possible to make their side of the bargaining go well. On the base was about a thousand men assigned to handle the dangerous cargo of tons and tons of bombs and ammunition. Most of the men had been given a choice of staying in the stockade and serving the balance of their criminal sentence or serving a year in Korea handling dangerous cargo. Not only was the cargo dangerous, but the bases and the ammunition was a target of enemy guerrillas attempting to blow up the bombs and kill as many handlers and guards as possible. In the nights before September 27th, at nearby Army and Marine depots, Marine guards had been found in the morning with their throats cut and large explosions had taken place on both the Army and Marine facilities. It was a nerve-wracking job staying alive when everything wanted to kill you. If an airman could stay alive and out of trouble for 12 months, he'd be sent back to the States and his court-martial offense forgiven and he could resume his military career as a basic airman. Some preferred to do their time in the stockade and be given a dishonorable discharge. Can't say I blame them. The man in charge of the guards that night was First Lieutenant George C. Schreiber. When I say that night, I mean he was every night and every day for months. And he had 10 additional duties when his 18-hour days supervising the guards gave him some time to attend to them. He was getting very little sleep. It was hard to sleep at all because of the allergic reaction he had to the penicillin shot he'd just received. I have the same allergy and I can tell you from personal experience, the lieutenant was in misery. To alleviate the itching and pain, he took all the Benetril he could swallow. As anybody knows, that'll leave you groggy and out of sorts. 
Add to that the general lack of sleep, and you have a leader who's not performing at his very best. Lieutenant Schreiber was born on October 15, 1927. He was 24 years old on this night. He was a basketball hero of the, and I'm probably going to ruin this name, Valparaiso University in Indiana. In the early 1950s, Indiana was where all the action was in basketball. George had made a name for himself as a player. He was on the 1950 All-Star team. After he graduated from college, he became a school teacher in Brookfield, Illinois, teaching in the fifth grade. He enlisted in the brand new Air Force on the 21st of December, 1951. He was promoted quickly to the rank of Staff Sergeant. He applied for and was given a slot in Officer Candidate School. When he finished the school, the former sergeant was made a second lieutenant and sent to the 543rd Ammo Supply Squadron in war-torn Korea. It was not long before he was given a field promotion to first lieutenant, an almost unheard of honor. He was a rising star in the Air Force. The man was a dedicated patriot who volunteered to fight for his country and asked the most of himself. He was a pious man who took his Catholic faith serious. My point is that he was the best America had to offer, a man doing a difficult and dangerous job. He was single, and that more than anything is probably what got him sent to Korea. Married men being sent to other assignments outside the combat, if possible. The Guard Force consisted of seven qualified air police and 25 other airmen who were assigned the guard duty. On the night of the 26th of September 1952, there were two air policemen on guard duty in the uh, ammunition supply dump K-9. The acting sergeant of the guard was Airman First Class Robert W. Toth, and the other was Airman Second Class Thomas Kinder. Kinder had come upon an Oriental male, or Asian male, however you want to say it. They called it Oriental in those days, so that's the word I'll use. He was wandering in the bomb dump and had challenged him and then had taken him into custody. The man appeared to be Chinese and not Korean. Those present during that night in September 1952 said the man spoke no Korean, but instead spoke a few words of Chinese which were not spoken by everybody who had contact with him. Airman Kinder said that after apprehending the intruder, he blew his whistle to summons Airman Toth, who drove over to Kinder's post in his broken-down old jeep. The two airmen put the man into the back of the jeep, and they got in the front with Toth driving. Toth later said that the unknown Chinese man tried to take his forty-five pistol from him. Toth slammed on the brakes, got out, and ran to the back, and then pistol-whipped the man by smashing him upside the head so hard with the gun he broke the grip of the 45. The Chinese man was then crumpled up in the back of the jeep, unconscious, and gushing blood from his head. They drove to the air police station where they dumped the man from the back of the jeep and dragged him inside and dropped him down on the floor. The desk sergeant on duty was Air Force Master Sergeant Raymond F. Adelman. When Master Sergeant Adelman saw the man bleeding on the floor and the appearance of Toth and Kinder, he immediately told Toth to go get Lieutenant Schreiber and have him report to the station. It was now after midnight on the morning of September 27th. Toth called, called a phone that was located near the lieutenant's quarters and a runner woke him up. 
Schreiber walked over to the phone in his underwear and listened to the story of how Toth and Kinder caught an intruder and the fight and injuries to the man. The lieutenant told him he was going to get dressed and come over to the station. Schreiber was very groggy, and it was about 2 o'clock in the morning. He had been suffering from lack of sleep, a severe rash, and had been taking large doses of Benadryl to alleviate the pain and itching. It was difficult to get on his feet and get moving. Before the lieutenant arrived, a shift change took place, and the station had twice the usual number of people in it. Now comes the part that was hotly debated until this very day. Some said the LT told Toph to take the man out and get rid of him. Some said the LT told Toph to shoot the man. The LT says he told Kinder to get an M1 carbine and some ammo and help Toph to take him out with the Jeep and get rid of him. Unquote. Schreiber said his thinking was that the local civilian Korean police were corrupt and were in on the thefts from his depot. In the last month, they'd lost about $50,000. That's half a million dollars in 2021 dollars. So, it wouldn't do him any good to turn the intruder over to them as they would just release him. The man had no identification on him other than a piece of paper with the name Bang Soon Kill or Kyle, I'm not sure. Master Sergeant Adelman said he told Toth, you heard the lieutenant, get rid of him. Toth said, I know what he meant. Toth then told Kinder to pick the man up, and with Toth's help, they loaded him in the back into the jeep. Before they left, Kinder looked at the lieutenant and asked, is that an order, sir? To which he replied, yes, that's an order. Kinder left with a strange look on his face. When they got back to the bomb dump, Toth told Kinder that he should place the man against some sandbags and shoot him. Kinder went on to say that Toth told him that they would make a report that Kinder had found this man wandering in a bomb dump and that he had refused to stop, and Kinder thought that he was being attacked by him, and when he just kept coming, that then he had fired his weapon at the man to stop him from his attack. Then he said, They'd bring the body back to the police station as if they'd never been there before. About five minutes after the two airmen left the station with the man, three gunshots were heard. The lieutenant was still in the station drinking a cup of coffee with Master Sergeant Adelman. Sergeant Rump was sent out to investigate. At the dump, he observed the man he had seen earlier at the operations office lying face down on the ground. He'd been shot. Rump returned and reported this. Lieutenant Schreiber ordered that an ambulance be called and medical authorities were summoned and the Airman 3rd Class Zapula was dispatched to the scene with an ambulance. Lieutenant Schreiber ordered Zapula to take the victim to the local dispensary where a gunshot wound on the right side of his chest and lacerations of the lower right eye and scalp were observed by the medics. Since his blood vessels had apparently collapsed, Efforts to administer blood plasma failed, and he died soon after his arrival, showing evidence of shock. Zapula then brought him to the Civil Affairs Section Dispensary in Pusan. Chai Chan Yo, a doctor on duty at that place, examined the body, noted the injuries, and determined that the cause of death was a gunshot wound. No autopsy was performed. After preparing the death certificate, he returned the body to the ambulance driver for delivery to the morgue.
I can't find what they did with the body, but he wasn't available for re-examination. So, I don't know what they did with him. Buried him in a mass grave or just threw him away. An entry was made into the logbook to the effect that a Korean had been found in the dump and shot. The following morning, Kinder, accompanied by Lieutenant Schreiber, went to the Air Police Investigating Section. There, they gave a false statement about the events of the preceding evening. Now, there was an investigation by Air Force OSI. The Office of Special Investigation was stretched pretty thin in 1952 Korea. Interviews were had, the documents were consulted, and the investigation was closed. It was found that a prowler was detected by a guard and that he had to use a firearm to protect himself. Case closed. But not so fast. That ain't the end of the story. Then, in 1953, Airman Kinder's tour of duty ended in Korea and he came home. His conscience got the best of him. He told his mother that he had been ordered by Lieutenant Schreiber to shoot a prisoner to death, a helpless man. He said he had not wanted to shoot the man, but he had to obey orders, and that the lieutenant had ordered him, and Airman Toth had gone with him to see the deed was done. His mother was enraged that her boy had been forced to do such a thing. She would not stand for it. She contacted her congressman and complained about what her boy had been forced to do. The congressman spoke to the chief of staff of the Air Force and demanded an investigation. The investigation was ordered to be reopened by the general. This time it was found that at least three Air Force personnel were guilty of executing a prisoner. A court-martial was to be conducted for all three of the accused. 5th Air Force JAG was assigned with the third investigation of the matter in January of 1953. The transcript of the trial is several hundred pages long. The appeals went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. There's a lot of conflicting testimony. After reviewing the record, I'll give you my Notes opinion of what actually happened. Kinder caught a prowler who may have been a Chinese guerrilla. Kinder and Toth beat the shit out of the guy out of frustration. Guys like him were stealing the place blind, killing guards, and setting bombs to explode. They took the guy to the police station. The officer in charge, Lieutenant Schreiber, could not keep the prisoner because he had no proof the man was a guerrilla, a thief, or a saboteur. He was just as frustrated as Kinder and Toth. Rather than release the man, and have him come back the next night and kill some of his men, they decided to kill him. After all, that's what happens to spies, guerrillas, and saboteurs. So the lieutenant ordered Toth and Kinder to shoot the man in a bomb dump, which they did. Next, they did a pretty good job of covering up what really happened and made it look like they tried to save the life of the guy who attacked a guard while in a restricted area. They'd have gotten away with it if Kinder would have kept his mouth shut. The aftermath of this was that First Lieutenant George C. Schreiber was given a life sentence of hard labor. Airman Thomas Kinder was given a life sentence. His sentence was commuted to two years hard labor and the sentence was remitted after he testified against Schreiber. When he was released from prison, 
he was restored to active duty and allowed to continue his military career. Airman Robert Toth, well, he'd been discharged from the Air Force by the time the crime had been detected. He was arrested at his job at, the steel, at a steel mill and sent to Korea for court-martial. His sister got a lawyer and a writ of habeas corpus was issued by a federal district court in Washington, D.C., ordering the Air Force to release him. The Air Force, in typical fashion, ignored the federal court order and filed an appeal. The appellate court overturned the order. Toth was tried by a court-martial and given a life sentence at hard labor. Two years later, the U.S. Supreme Court gave a landmark decision in this case. They said that he had been discharged and had no affiliation with the military. They had lost jurisdiction over him. There was no law that allowed a civilian court to try him for a murder that had taken place outside the U.S. He was ordered release and his conviction overturned. He was not legally guilty of murder. I'd say he got off scot-free since he did spend a couple of years in the slammer, so that really didn't apply. Lieutenant Schreiber claimed he never ordered the murder. The trial was motivated by politics. Everybody has an excuse, and I guess that was his. Now, if you want a real deep dive into this case, there was an excellent book written about it by Robert A. Shanes. He was the lawyer of the lieutenant. The name of this book is called Command Influence, A Story of Korea and the Politics of Injustice. The photo of, of this episode shows a young kinder if you want to see him. That's the guy that actually pulled the trigger. If you enjoyed this story, please subscribe and as always, thanks for listening.